Good morning and welcome to Rising. We're so glad to have you here with us this morning once again. And we have a really interesting show. Why don't you tell them about it, Brianna? Well, we've got some new developments and changes to Twitter's content moderation policy. The Twitter account at Elon Jet was suspended yesterday. College student Jack Sweeney founded the account in 2020 and kept tabs on Elon Musk's private jet. Sweeney shared the public air travel travel data on Twitter for years. Twitter reinstated the account Wednesday night, but it restricted Sweeney from posting the locations of Musk and other public figures' planes in real time. As for Sweeney's personal account, that was permabanned after Musk threatened legal action. This despite the fact that earlier last month's uh, self-dubbed chief twit and defender of free speech Elon Musk took to Twitter writing, quote, my commitment to free speech extends to even the account following my plane, even though that is a direct personal safety risk. Musk justified his change of heart by claiming a car carrying their child was followed last night. That was an interesting tweet that involved little Nas X. Yeah, there was a tweet about a car... But he just, Elon Nas just X, called it Little X. This, little, little X. Is Maybe right. that's someone else. Maybe that's Maybe. one of his own kids' names. That is actually possible. <laughs> Right? He, one of his kids is... Uh... Uh, the, the difficult to say. He was even asked in an interview once to pronounce it, and he seemed to not be entirely I think that's there. what he meant and by that's clear. So his kids were in a car that were being followed, which is a genuinely scary circumstance yeah. to be in and that I have a lot of empathy for. However, it, it, from my perspective, it seems to have little to nothing to do with flight records. So one funny quirk of this is that uh, when Musk tweeted out that real-time posting of someone else's location violates doxing policy, uh, it was kind of fact-checked by the kind of Twitter notes function. Mm -hmm. And it pointed out that Publishing flight records is protected under the First Amendment. This is longstanding. You know, this this person tweet posts a lot of people's flight records. Um, he's a fan of Elon Musk. He, he Elon Musk once tried to get him to pull down the the account by offering him five hundred dollars, and the guy was like, "Well, I really just want to meet you and like ride on your plane." <laughs> I think he like said, "Let me ride on your plane, or give me fifty thousand dollars, and this could all be over." And Musk chose not to do it. So here we are. Hmm. So then he ended up buying all of Twitter in order to deal with it. Um, yeah, so so a couple things. Yeah. One, Community Notes is great. This is the program that was formerly Birdwatch. I've talked about it a lot. I, it's fantastic. People get fact-checked all the time. It's it's all over the place because it allows users do it. Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't reflect the bias of content moderators because anyone can do it. It's more like uh, it, it's it's community Wikipedia. derived. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, fact-checking like Wikipedia. Um, so that is great. And he and Elon has been all for it. He's been totally supportive of it. It's so much better than what Facebook does with fact-checking. Um, the other thing is, like, okay, I, I don't think. Um, an account that gives like a rough approximation of where your plane is is really threatening your physical safety. And then even so, even if you're giving more specific information, like Elon is standing at the corner of 17th and K, um, I'm just, just docks where our, where our location is. <laughs> that was the location Robbie. that popped into my head. Um, like. I don't know that that's necessarily threatening anyone. I mean, I, I, I might say that, right? I might be walking through a, a square in D.C. and say, oh, I just saw Senator whoever. I just I saw, like, I've seen Senator Amy Klobuchar on the street. We yeah, used to live in the same building. I've seen AOC. Tweet. I've seen Matt Gates. I've seen... There was a semi-viral tweet yesterday where someone saw a picture of Rudy Giuliani and uh, in, a, in a fit, in an outfit they didn't love, and posted it on, on Twitter. And everyone could see in that moment that Rudy Giuliani, yeah. Giuliani was standing on this corner in Midtown. And what, what constitutes doxing has been of some dispute. A lot of folks can, uh, that are kind of in the Elon Musk camp have said that 
the the claims that folks are being doxxed, the claims that a lot of progress, left left leaning folks are being doxxed, are exaggerated. That there is um, too much ratcheting up of language around violence and threat uh, when it comes to, let's say, trans activists or some of these uh, drag shows and things mm -hmm. like that, where there have been a lot of protests recently. But on the flip side, it seems that there's a lot of concern about threat when it comes to Elon Musk. So I saw somebody tweeting something along the lines of, we care about doxing and protecting people from physical violence when you're a billionaire owner of Twitter, but not when you're an average citizen. Um, I mean, I, I do think sharing your address or your private phone number or those, I think those things are certainly doxing. I, if, if there was an account that was like tweeting out like what his address is or something, I would probably think that should be disabled. I, I, I think that that probably is true too. Now, to, we should also point out that Twitter is also blocking links to the Elon Musk jet Instagram account. So he has the same set up on, I think, Instagram and Facebook, other social media platforms. So if you try, if you're, mm -hmm. if you're not this guy, but you try to post links to it and other services, that's also being blocked um, because uh, it is, quote, potentially harmful under the policy. Do you see this as inconsistent with some of the remarks that Elon Musk has made before, including that he quite explicitly would not block this account? Well, this also shows that as a reminder, you know, social media companies don't have to operate under the exact same free speech norms as the First Amendment prescribes for the public square. Mm -hmm. And that, that is occasionally beneficial because in the public square, if you were just on public property or something and you share and you, you know, wrote down on sidewalk chalk or something what Elon Musk's address is, I don't think you can be arrested for that. So it's better that Twitter can, it's, it's not necessarily wrong that Twitter can make as a private entity, can make speech-related decisions this, not— the, the, the question, though, Robbie, is whether or not Elon Musk is being inconsistent with both his own stated goals for Twitter about being a free speech space that is much more closely aligned with what the offline free speech standards are as set by the courts. I, I, yes, I think he, like all of the people that preceded him and probably all of the people that will, will follow him in terms of content moderation— are certainly being inconsistent. But that's, I don't think that's necessarily fair because Elon Musk made claims about why he was buying Twitter and what Twitter would become that are not the claims that everybody else has made. Twitter, he bought Twitter precisely because he had criticisms of how it was run under previous ownership. So other people weren't sitting around saying Twitter's gonna be a free speech zone, we're bringing comedy back to Twitter, I'm not gonna block people even if they harass me, I'm gonna open it up. That was Elon Musk's claim. And it does seem to be really interesting. A lot of people are skeptical about the rationale that's being brought up here to say my kids were threatened so in a car, by the way, mm -hmm. which I think is legitimate. But because of that, I'm going to shut down this account that has nothing to do I don't, with No, I don't, I don't agree with that. With that I, I think the previous owners did of, of these other uh, um, prior to Musk. I remember Dorsey saying that Twitter was, should be viewed as the free speech wing of the free speech party. Zuckerberg has said Facebook is a free speech site. No, no, how, can you, how can you say that there isn't a market difference, a market turn and trajectory for Elon Musk, when that is his stated, his whole stated purpose of buying Twitter is to do something differently than the people have done before. Right. He, he obviously is in a category of his own. 
uh, Jack didn't say, I'm never going to, he didn't make a whole personality out of, I'm never going to ban the guy that's tracking my plane. Elon Musk explicitly said, I'm never going to ban the guy who's tracking my plane. And within a month of owning the site has banned the guy that's tracking his plane. And again, using this excuse of his children, I think a lot of people are seeing this as another instance of him doing what he did with the Alex Jones banning, which also seemed to be inconsistent, where he's saying, because I have experienced something personally, which legitimately is a tragedy and hard, the loss of his own his own child, it's, it's horrible. But I, I'm able to put, have empathy for myself and make policy based on what makes me comfortable. But when it comes to the same things that other people are experiencing, other folks, whether they be trans or, or you know, black or whatever it is on the site who've experienced different kind of targeted harassment, it's, it's a completely different policy. And people are objecting to the idea that it's, again, elite power concentrated to benefit an elite person, the, you know, what used to be the richest person in the world, instead of trying to promulgate policies that actually expand free speech and protect people who are genuinely vulnerable. Yeah, I, I think it is inconsistent, but it's a taste of their own medicine for people who had So it's a revenge politics now? That's basically what it is. Okay, so I, I, I think that the people, a lot of people who are watching are sincerely invested in the kind of free speech principles that Elon Musk articulated when he bought this app. And I am one of those people. I really hope for the best. I think that a lot of these disclosures that we've gotten in the Twitter files are meaningful and I hope something comes out of them. I'm really interested to hear more about who specifically was shadow banned. I'm interested to hear more about how these decisions got made. I think some of the disclosures about how the decision around banning Trump were made, that where there was an admission that he didn't actually violate company policy, that's huge. That's big news. And I think that's a good thing for him to be doing. But when he does stuff like this, where he's clearly just putting himself before the principles that got him so much, so many fans and so much support in the first place, I think that he's really hurting his own personal brand. But if the previous regimes had lived up to their own promises and commitments on this exact same thing, on free speech, he never would have had the interest to buy it in the first place. He never yeah, well, would have seen something to correct. Right, but they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have those same values. You know, I, I, I disagree with that. them. I, I have, have been criticizing Twitter long before Elon Musk was a, a thought in my brain. But the, the fact is that we're talking about Elon Musk here, and we can't deflect to everybody else's responsibility. Those other people aren't at Twitter anymore. So what is Elon Musk going to do? Is Elon Musk going to have to live down the fact that he flagrantly, over and over again now, is undermining his own commitments um, to the people who love him and we're looking forward to him making some positive changes on the app? So we'll see how the public continues to respond to this. I think a lot a lot of folks are seeing this as a hypocritical move. Um, we'll see if it gets reversed. There's a lot of holding him accountable being done in the mainstream media for the inconsistencies in the policies he outlines. I agree with that. I, we were missing some of that previously, I think. Sure, sure. All right, I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next, Brianna. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Sam Bankman Freed, the infamous three-named fiend who was recently indicted by the DOJ, SEC, and CFTC on eight counts, including wire fraud charges, was arrested on Tuesday, a day before he was scheduled to testify before Congress about the $8 billion collapse of his crypto exchange, FTX. Now, we've talked a great deal about the cause of the collapse and the bizarreness of SBF's behavior, both before and after. After the FTX collapse, the sleeping in a beanbag in the office, dressing like a college freshman on laundry day, and doing innumerable ill-advised media appearances, apparently with the blessing of his two Stanford Law professor parents. 
Maybe this is why they advise doctors not to operate on family members. It seems that good judgment might not be able to overcome a parent's rose-colored glasses. But beyond the wire fraud charges that take up most of the indictment, SBF has also been charged with violating campaign finance laws, a charge that recalls the reporting we've done about SBF's prolific donations to the Democratic and Republican parties. Here's District Attorney Damian Williams explaining the campaign finance charge at a press conference earlier this week. We charge that Bankman-Fried violated federal campaign finance laws by causing tens of millions of dollars in illegal campaign contributions to be made to candidates and committees associated with both Democrats and Republicans. These contributions were disguised to look like they were coming from wealthy co-conspirators, when in fact the contributions were funded by Alameda Research with stolen customer money. And all of this dirty money was used in service of Bankman-Fried's desire to buy bipartisan influence and impact the direction of public policy in Washington. Now, given how many people are touched by SBF's donations, from Maxine Waters to Mitch McConnell, everyone wants to know, did SBF's fraud extend to his philanthropic endeavors? And if so, which elected officials are going to have some splitting to do once they've been identified as a beneficiary of SBF's fraud? Congress's youngest member, Gen Zer Maxwell Frost, has already gotten ahead of the story, tweeting, I never solicited a donation from SBF, but he did donate to my campaign. We are an operation that rejects corporate PAC money, which means we also reject stolen money. Going on to tweet that he will be donating SBF's contribution to an LGBT charity. But what about the other recipients of the $40 million SBF donated to this political cycle alone? Chantel Brown, centrist antagonist to Nina Turner's two congressional runs in Ohio's uh, 11th District, received $1 million from SBF. Uh, Mitch McConnell's super PAC also received $1 million just weeks before FTX declared bankruptcy. President Biden received $5 million from the dethroned crypto king, while two PACs that fund House Republicans received nearly a million dollars combined, according to FEC filings. What are the implications for recipients of these funds? Theodore Schleifer over at Puck recently interviewed SBF, shortly before his arrest, in fact, and published a neat bit of reporting digging into what the SDNY prosecutors might specifically allege beyond the relatively vague charges in the complaint. One theory involves something known as straw donations, which are donations made in the name of someone else in order to avoid contribution limits established by campaign finance laws or to hide the identity of the donor. Remember, although there's been a heavy emphasis on SBF's prolific donations to the Democratic Party, SBF has been clear that he gave to Republicans in equal measure via dark money donations. Listen to this interview with Tiffany Fong. They donated about the same amount to both parties this year. That was not generally known because despite Citizens United being literally the highest profile Supreme Court case of the decade and the thing everyone talks about when they talk about campaign finance, for some reason, in practice, no one can possibly fathom the idea that someone in practice actually gave dark. So, I don't know, all my Republican donations were dark. Uh, won't see them. Um, and the reason was not for regulatory reason. It's because reporters freak the f*** out if you donate to a Republican. They're all super liberal and didn't want to have that fight. So I just made all the Republican ones dark. Um, but I was, whatever, 
second or third biggest Republican donor this year as well. Girls was all for the primary. They didn't give anything in general elections. They don't give about general elections. So what matters? Like it's the primaries where the where you good candidates against bad candidates. So SBF hid his Republican donations for optics reasons, knowing that the goodwill he was buying from the liberal media with his effective altruism shtick would be lost if he was exposed as donating to Republicans. But of course, he was donating to Republicans because, in his own words, this is what big money interests do, give to both sides to ensure their agenda gets passed no matter who wins. Their agenda always wins, not yours. Of course, thanks to Citizens United, SBF's uh, companies could give unlimited amounts to disclosed super PACs and undisclosed dark money groups. So according to speculation reported by Schleifer, the charges are more likely to be related to donations to campaigns and party committees, meaning principles, not just super PACs, may be implicated. Another theory reported in Puck is that SBF affiliates like executive Ryan Salame, who donated $24 million to GOP candidates this cycle, were basically giving away Alameda money, that Alameda was a direct donor hiding behind other names. Another theory is that FTX donors might have been immediately reimbursed by the business, which would violate the straw donor ban as well. You, you see why this is. You're, you're not allowed to expense a political donation as an end run around the $3,000 federal contribution limits. Schleifer says this theory might explain why some not-that-rich individuals cut an unusually large number of political checks in recent years. Now, you should check out Schleifer's reporting for a full rundown of all the possible insider theories as to who might be implicated in the campaign finance violation charge. Note that district, the district attorney who led the press conference this week denied claims that the timing of the arrest had anything to do with preventing SBF from having to testify at yesterday's hearing in front of donation recipient Maxine Waters. But that doesn't mean that Maxine Waters doesn't have a dog in this fight. She chairs the Financial Services Committee, a powerful and much sought-after committee position in part because of the enormous sums of fundraising dollars that can be raised by committee members from the financial industry. SBF gave over $300,000 to nine Financial Services Committee members. Last year, Waters gave a statement at a subcommittee on oversight and investigations in which she said the Financial Services Committee had, quote, begun a thorough examination of the marketplace. <laughs> How much confidence did you have in that? Given the SBF money flowing through the committees, it doesn't exactly inspire a lot of confidence for me and a regulatory regime that would protect consumers. Nor does it make me optimistic about Waters' chances of coming out of this unscathed. One final important point to mention is that none of this would have happened if we, as a public, had done more to address the pernicious influence of dark money in American politics. I mean, remember how glibly SBF talked about his ability to exploit dark money donations in the clip I played of his interview with Tiffany Fong. He said, quote, despite Citizens United being literally the highest profile Supreme Court case of the decade and the thing everyone talks about with campaign finance, for some reason, in practice, no one can possibly fathom the idea that someone actually gave dark. Good point, Sam. Why is that? And why are Democrats and Republicans doing something about it? Republicans have spent the last few weeks emphasizing SPF's uh, connection with the Democratic Party. But have they proposed any campaign finance reform laws that would prevent the kind of influence-seeking SPF was engaged in? 
And do they have anything to say about the conservative Supreme Court justices that opened the door to this kind of dark money overreach to begin with? Rhode Island Democrat Sheldon Whitehouse repeatedly introduces a campaign finance bill called the Disclose Act to no avail and most recently failed to pass the Senate's 60-vote filibuster threshold in September, ending in a 49-49 vote. Democrat Tammy Baldwin and Republican Mike Crapo were both absent. Whatever happened to the bipartisan push for campaign finance reform exemplified by John McCain and Rush Feingold's push back in the early aughts, when, <laughs> back when Clinton was holding coffee clashes for likely donors and rewarding high rollers with sleepovers in the Lincoln bedroom. And why in this moment are progressive elected not using the collapse of FTX as an opening to advance this all-important cause? One, I might add, which continues to enjoy bipartisan support. Lobbying dollars hit record highs this year, particularly in the healthcare sector and, yes, finance and real estate. If there's any question why you can't afford to be sick, pay your mortgage, or own a home in the first place, here's your answer. Now, liberals will tell you we can't have nice things because Republicans or because we need some McKinsey elite like Buttigieg to figure out some technocratic solution to why you don't have enough money. And too many conservatives will tell you there's no solution at all. Just, you know, pull at your bootstraps harder. But what if we know how to fix many of our country's problems and big money interests are simply in the way? The biggest story in the country is that some 30-year-old nepotism case has stolen billions of dollars and used it to try to buy a favorable regulatory regime so he can keep stealing while the government that's supposed to enforce the law looks the other way. And still, we see little to no legislative solutions being offered in this moment. The Lever recently reported on how crypto bros are even trying to get into the 401k game. Remember what happened when the housing market crashed pensions? Are we only seeing the tip of where this unholy union between corporations and government can take us? I think yes. But without pressure from the public for real reform, it's unlikely we'll, uh, sorry, it's, it's likely rather that we'll feel more acute real pain soon enough. When will a bipartisan populist majority finally start complaining about this, the important stuff? It's easy to get really discouraged when you see how in bed the regulators and the politicians and then the industries they're supposed to be overseeing are financial, how financially entangled they are. It makes you really, what hope could there possibly be? It's, it's disgusting. I mean, look, it's not as though solutions aren't being offered up, but they just somehow aren't able yeah. to pass. The people who benefit from the system being at the way it is manage somehow not to ever be able to get this legislation through Congress. And it reminds me of a conversation we were having yesterday about Kevin DeLeon and the lack of accountability in California after that leaked tape and, you know, a lot of public pressure for him to resign, both from other politicians and from the public, and how there's really nothing you can do about it when we've kind of handed so much power over to these individuals without putting some accountability mechanisms in place, and when the democratic process doesn't work as it's supposed to so that people can actually vote these people out. No one is going to vote Maxine Waters out in her district because of some scandal over this. And no one is going to vote out any number of politicians on both sides of the aisle because they have failed to do anything about our uh, corporate you know, money in Congress capture problem. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a big issue. And the stakes have become very high for a lot of these industries, for you know, financial interests. So they have a 
incredible incentive to spend tons and tons and tons of money to rig the system in their favor. Individual firms have that incentive to rig it against competitors. And it's always it's difficult to you know regulate thoughtfully in a way that doesn't all, that doesn't just entrench people already at the top, especially with an emerging industry like this. Mm. But it is it has been very interesting to see how many uh, political people were uh, were <laughs> paid off by. I mean, not paid off unwittingly in some sense, but that makes a difference. Yes. Um, and it was clear, like he was going to shepherd through SBF was his ideal regulation of this space. There's no way that wasn't going to benefit yes. him. Money talks. It's why yeah. people give money. It's not altruistic. There's no such thing. <laughs> We've learned nothing yeah. else from this escapade. It's that effective altruism is a ruse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's for buying political uh, influence. And I hope that people see that it's not about being a good person or a bad person. This is how our system is designed to operate. And if we want what people, the, the desires of the people to more accurately map on to what Congress is actually doing, then we're going to have to get to the bottom of this problem. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. The official portrait of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was unveiled in Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol last night. It will stand next to the collection of portraits in the Speaker's lobby. Former Republican Speaker John Boehner became emotional while speaking at the reveal. Let's take a listen to that. Madam Speaker, I have to say, my girls told me, tell the Speaker how much we admire her. Senate Majority Leader also expressed his thoughts on Pelosi's career and legacy. 20 years, she kept saying the same thing. Our unity is our strength. She kept saying it and saying it and saying it, and the results speak for themselves. We cannot talk about the Affordable Care Act without mentioning Nancy Pelosi. We cannot talk about the American Rescue Plan without mentioning Nancy Pelosi. We cannot talk about the Infrastructure Law, the Violence Against Women Act, the Lilly Ledbetter Act, repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and so much more without mentioning Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi. She did it all. What do you make of uh, John Boehner getting choked up there? Do you expect that kind of display of emotion from someone who's kind of cast themselves as a political antagonist? I think we do expect that from John Boehner specifically, because isn't he known for his um, emotional... He's a man who's willing to cry. Right over Nancy Pelosi? No, just in general. Wasn't there? Isn't John Boehner's tears the whole thing? Oh dear, I might have missed that meme. Uh, but look, it I, is a thing. Yeah, yeah. He cry. He cries all the time. All the yes. Here's a roll call article. All the times John Boehner cried. Okay. <laughs> Why? Oh, here's a political article from 2013. Why does John Boehner cry so much? Okay, look. I'm not trying to do a toxic masculinity yeah. here. And yeah. How dare you shame a man who who is not afraid to be vulnerable in front of? You, Brianna. Look, my issue is not with the fact that he's crying. <laughs> my issue oftentimes in these situations, you know, bipartisanship is... We have the tissues here, <laughs> just in case. Well, no, they're, just they're, in it's case. justified your direction, Robbie, because again, this is a safe space for men to cry. <laughs> but look, my, my concern is always like, 
I'm always uncomfortable with the closeness that people demonstrate mm -hmm. in some of these situations because I don't know if this is fair, and it's not that I'm against bipartisanship, obviously, but sometimes the stakes of the things that we're fighting for are extremely high. And the camaraderie between people, I think, is only the kind of camaraderie that could exist if the stakes are not personal for you. And I've observed this. I've, I, I spoke to someone who was not a lawyer who was in the middle of a, of a case. And they w watched how the, their counsel and opposing counsel chit-chatted and got together and were talking about how they went to law school together and all this stuff. And she was like, well, we're litigating a very serious issue for me. We're litigating something that's deeply personal. And this camaraderie feels like, how can you possibly bring the fight that I want you to bring an advocacy mm -hmm. for me if there is this chumminess. And some people felt that way about um, Scalia and RBG. And it does, it gives me kind of, there's a big club and you're not in it, George Carlin vibes. Yeah, I am pulled in multiple directions on this because I like the idea uh, on some level of people being able to get along even if they have political differences yeah, and I mean, like, Look at us. Oh, oh. <laughs> and we really do. We did the, the, the tissues ready. No, we, yeah, we headlined an event the other day. We did. Uh, it was, uh, it was fun. Um, so I, you know, when, when, like, oh, Ellen DeGeneres and George Bush, like that, you know, people yelled about that because, yeah, George Bush did a lot of things that are very bad, and that's putting it mildly. But I, I, am drawn to the idea of people like that getting along and being able to be friends even if they disagree. But on the other side of that, exactly what you said is true. Yes, th then it shows that there aren't actually these vast differences between our powerful elites who run our government and have nominal R or D next to their name, but and, and have, you know, will we'll we'll scream at each other while the cameras are rolling and get their little soundbite in and then go have dinner together and go get drinks together and, and yeah. you know, appear at each other's children's weddings right. and various things, exactly. and there's not... Or, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump at Donald Trump's wedding. I mean, yeah. I think there's a difference between Bernie Sanders hooking up with Josh Hawley and doing whatever they're going to do together substantively, but you don't see Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley on the golf course, you mm -hmm. know, eating shrimp cocktails together at some restaurant, some steakhouse in D.C. That, that, and there's a yeah. difference there, and I think that sometimes the appearance of conviviality is privileged over people actually coming together over the issues that, that should really matter. Yeah. But maybe we should talk about the, the portrait itself. Uh, what, what do you make of it? It seems like a Pelosi from an earlier era with a shorter haircut at an, at an, at an earlier time. How does it stack up against some of the other famous Looks uh, fine to me. portraits, I, presidential I, portraits? Well, the, the, I did not like the Obama portrait. So the Michelle Obama one yeah. in particular was not great, right? That, it was a little stiff. That? It was I think favorite. that at this point, <laughs> we're allowed to say it. I did feel like that. it was a little stiff. The grayscale that they put her in, I don't think was especially yeah. uh, flattering. No, this was a good, this was a good picture. Yeah, I'm just I did pull up the list of other times John Boehner has right, cried. This is me. pretty hilarious. Boehner has gotten misty-eyed during a tribute to golf legend Arnold Palmer while listening to Irish music on St. Patrick's Day. The, the Ar Arnold Palmer of drink fame, of yes, cocktail fame. He's also a famous uh, golfer. golfer. No, I get it. Golf is like the one sport I have any sort of knowledge about. I do watch golf. And now you know why we haven't been covering the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> and while singing America the Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then he also cried when he replaced Nancy Pelosi as speaker in 2010. And, uh, and uh, yeah, he, he said uh, he blubbered incoherently for, for a long time. Uh, Justin Amash, um, who uh, was a, we've talked about on the show, is a former libertarian um, member of Congress, was a Republican prior to being that, left the Republican Party over frustration with everything. Um, 
voted against John Boehner for speaker mm. because he thought he was a big spending kind of sellout Republican or something mm. and said John Boehner was by far the best speaker he ever worked with. He really liked the guy, mm. could not stand it. thought Paul Ryan was insincere in his, while, while sounding committed to Amash's principles, was totally insincere mm-hmm. and, uh, and double dealing. And so well, look, th- there's something to be, you can be seems, effective by being affable. like a nice guy. I, being no... affable is not, it, it can be, you know, of its own yeah. thing a good, like I, Ted Cruz, nobody likes him. Right. Like, I think what Lindsey Graham said, he could be murdered on the Senate floor and no one would, no jury would convict. Would convict. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I will say a criticism of Bernie is that, you know, there's that famous New York Times interview where he says, I'm not going to call you on your birthday. I, there's a, there's a, t- there's some moments yeah. where I think that he might've gotten a little farther, not by greasing palms like what everyone yeah. else does, but just shaking some hands and, and Bernie always seems, I mean, I don't know him nearly as well as you do. So you can tell me <laughs> if my impression is wrong. I, he seems very serious. He seems very like he doesn't. He doesn't take a break from the from the. I think he's sincerely the really against the millionaires and, and the focused on the things that he's focused yeah. on. I'm not people, saying that's a bad thing. People say that the only difference between offstage Bernie and onstage Bernie is uh, the use of colorful language, and that's mm-hmm. it. <laughs> the topics don't change; just the little the flair changes a little. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, we made it through this segment without any tears on either of our parts, so we should wrap before uh, before this gets out of hand. Indeed. More rising right after this. Former Michigan Congressman Justin Amash infamously defected from the Republican Party in 2020 to join the Libertarian Party, becoming the first and only Libertarian member of Congress. On Wednesday's episode of New York Times journalist Jane Costen's podcast, The Argument, he talked about how his love of liberty propelled him to make the jump. Amash is no longer in Congress, but he hasn't stopped trying to grow the Libertarian Party, and he further makes the case for why others should follow suit. Here's a little bit from him on that podcast episode. Let's listen. People in the United States can succeed without all of these connections to government and special handouts and special favors. And so for me, that was sort of a libertarian ethos. And when I joined politics, I thought I could move the Republican Party in a more libertarian direction. And I tried so many different ways to do that. I tried by working nicely with some of the people in the establishment. I started the House Freedom Caucus, but ultimately I failed to change things. And that was very difficult for me to just say, hey, I'm giving up on this and I need to try something different. So Jane says in this conversation that she um, identified as a libertarian. She now identifies as an independent, I think because she has some pretty serious issues with the latest iteration of the Libertarian Party, and Amash has some of his differences as well. Um, this is this is Robbie Insider Baseball now. Yeah, so help us understand, <laughs> what is the, at the heart of the divide within the Libertarian Party? So the Libertarian Party has gone through a lot of iterations over the years. Um, the candidate in 2016 and 2012 was Gary Johnson, the mm-hmm. former Republican governor of New Mexico. Um, 
Gary was not a great communicator. Uh, he he was famously, if you remember, the what, what is, Aleppo is Aleppo moment. Yeah. Which, that one, honestly, <laughs> the, the way that question was asked was yeah. pretty unfair. It was I, just unprompted, unconnected anything. Yeah. Someone asked him what should be done about Aleppo. Like, it yeah. wasn't in context of a larger. Yeah. It was kind of unfair to him. Yeah. But he had plenty of other um, uh, just kind of weird yeah. communications choices. That... And then he picked for his lieutenant governor, uh, Bill Weld, the former governor of Massachusetts, a, a kind of never-Trump Republican vibes mm-hmm. was the ticket's mm-hmm. vibes. They were not—so that was the, the vibe. It was not a very libertarian vibe. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a Republican-turning-liberal vibe. Mm-hmm. Rhino vibes. Yes. And then in the 2016 race, when they had this great opportunity because, you know, they're up against two of the most reviled main, uh, major party candidates of all times, Bill Weld— really came close to just endorsing Hillary over their own ticket, Mm. which was seen as a stunning betrayal. Mm. So I agree with it. The people who then took over the Libertarian Party out of anger for what these candidates did, I 100 percent agree. I I share their frustration. The ticket in the middle was a a woman named Joe Jorgensen and her vice president, Spike Cohen. I find them great. They're not well-known people. They don't come from politics, so that was a a defect Mm. they have. But I find them to be completely libertarian, and I I share their views, like, almost 100 percent. I don't quite understand, but the people were like taking over in the midst of this kind of don't necessarily get along with them, and that, that's harder to understand exactly so why. So the new regime yeah. is, is people who are, um, I, I think, at least perceived to be more friendly, not to Republicans writ large, but to very, um, to, to a kind of uh, um, new right, Trumpy kind of, it's very radical on foreign policy and COVID and some other things in, in ways that I would agree with. And actually, you would on the foreign policy stuff, you would definitely agree mm-hmm. with. But is pretty, um, is, is, I think, off-putting in some ways, or in their messaging has been very um, kind of podcast energy or very, very, um, very contrary and very I'm provocative. Offended, sir. <laughs> Doesn't everyone love podcast energy? So it's, it's, I, I think it's harsh. I think it's, uh, I think it's off-putting to normies. It would be I my see. criticism of it. It's very online. It's very, it, the party is very online now. So when Jane Coaston says, you know, this, the title of this, um, you know, the, the article and episode of her podcast is the Libertarian Party became too extreme for me, so I changed my political allegiance. What is the kind of extremity that you think she's responding to? So there was a lot of, um, there, there are debates in libertarian circles about whether the Libertarian Party needs to be like anti-woke, essentially. I see. Because... You can be anti, you can think wokeness is bad, or you can think some things that are described as wokeness are bad. I certainly think that. You probably think some of those things. Every movement has its own. But it doesn't, uh, it it does, wokeness often does not compel any sort of policy response. So if your thing, and libertarians' thing is like wanting the government to be smaller, to not do much, it, like, I don't think the government should, like, legislate non wokeness, obviously. Some, I think, in the libertarian movement are trying to find a way in order to pander to, like, DeSantis-supporting type people yeah. and say, oh, we're, well, we're going to combat wokeness even harder, that it can be discordant with a view that says the government should do nothing. Isn't, isn't there kind of a lane, a really sweet spot for libertarians to say, we can inveigh against wokeness with the best of them and condemn it mightily, but because we're libertarian, don't be too afraid because we're not actually going to do anything about it to like satisfy people who are more Yeah, I mean, that would be my exact views, uh, but I'm not in charge of the libertarian party. <laughs> Different people are. And I, and I think Amash would, on, would say those things as well. And, and it's not, you know, I'm not making it sound like it's this totally acrimonious situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amash is very popular in the libertarian party. He might 
be the Libertarian Party's candidate next time around. Um, I mean, he these are these are healthy arguments being had a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not it's not a dire situation, but um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's well, you know how these things take place. It's, uh, I, it's, I know you have your. We talk a lot about your uh, the the kind of left progressive. Oh, the view, left so we're will left. Too. The left right now is having a debate as to whether or not uh, squad members should be kicked out of DSA over the uh, vote to crush the union strike, the real union strike, or whether the people who are suggesting that, like Shama Sawant, a Seattle City Councilwoman, uh, who is in both DSA and a more I'd argue more radical left organization, socialist alternative, whether she should be kicked out for suggesting it as a kind of entryism. Everyone's calling everybody Trotsky's. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> I, I, I don't envy uh, these kind of uh, battles because I've experienced them so much myself. But it is nice to have some insight into other political lanes that are opening up and having a robust discussion that's increasingly public. This is in the New York Times. That breaks people's perception that there are only two lanes in the whole wide world to go down Republican and Democrat. Like I said yesterday, it feels, especially with COVID stuff, it feels like everything's got to be banned or required. Mm-hmm. And that is that is the most anathema to the Libertarian Party. Yeah. So I really hope voices like Amash's can be raised. It says, we're not, if we, if we got in charge, we're going to get in charge, we're going to leave you alone. Mm-hmm. Make your own choices. This is not going to be, we're not going to force on the entire country one agenda or another that just, that leads to everyone fighting with each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, thank, so you, thank you for those insights, Robbie. And then we'll have more arising for you right after this. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is facing accusations of creating a registry of transgender people in the Lone Star State after his office requested the Department of Public Safety to compile a list of individuals who had changed their gender on their Texas driver's license and other department records during the past two years. According to documents obtained by the Washington Post, the chief of the DPS's driver's license division emailed colleagues on June 30th asking for the, quote, total number of changes from male to female and female to male for the last 24 months. The communication was labeled AG request sex change data. A representative for Texas DPS told the Post in a statement a verbal request was received. Ultimately, our team advised the AG's office the data requested neither exists nor could be accurately produced. Thus, no data of any kind was provided. So I read this story, and it's very unclear why, for what purpose this was asked. Um, I, I think there was a lot of uh, concern, which is understandable, um, but it, it's not, I don't know that they were trying to create some kind of registry. They were asking for the, the raw total, mm-hmm. not for Names. identifying information of who did it. I, I would still object to them asking for that information. Just like I, I get, a, I started to get weirded out when like the census wants to know your, you know, everything about your, how you, everything. I don't know. Okay. It's too much. Like, get, leave me alone, government. Well, I, I Stop counting think, people. Well, th- I mean, that's, that's the thing. Historically, there, in, in Europe, especially because of the legacy of the Holocaust, there's a lot of stigma around these kinds of lists. Mm-hmm. A lot of countries in Europe don't you know, keep who the else same kept kind lists? of, I mean, that, that is exactly the point. They, they don't, these countries Hitler. now, because of that legacy, don't keep the same kind of demographic information that is pretty routine in the United States, and which we tend to associate with being able to 
track disparities and bad things that can potentially be happening in a population so that they can be cured and not invisibilized. And it's a double-edged sword, right? I think that some people say, you know, because of the context, this is Texas, there's a negative implication about what that information is going to be used for. If this had happened in Massachusetts, probably people would be thinking, good, they're making sure that all of the trans people are okay and they're tracking them for that reason. And in Europe, it's both, too. What do you think Ken Paxton would have used it for? Well, we see bills trying to criminalize uh, folks, you know, uh, parents. So for, like, talking points and say, like, you know, 12,000 people changed their sex identification this year and this is bad? I mean, yeah. I mean, there was that viral moment of Matt Walsh uh, kind of embarrassingly, I think it was on, on maybe Joe Rogan, embarrassingly grossly no. overestimating how many trans people actually transitioned in a given year by, like— That was pretty embarrassing. —orders of magnitude, like— Thousands yeah. and thousands of uh, mis- mis- yeah. M- Michael Tracy, it. who is no conservative or is a interesting in, in, in a liberal space, uh, yeah. independent journalist. Uh, yeah, I would point it out. It does not say something. It does not say anything good about you if you like your signature issue. You don't. You can't even put the statistics within the realm of like a factor. Yeah, of whatever I think it's it like is. a few hundred, and he estimated it like thousands and yeah. thousands. So um, that's all to say. You know, in in Europe, oftentimes there, there there are problems understanding exactly what's going on with minority communities because they don't keep that kind of information. And it's not clear to me how you guarantee that information like that is ever used positively, equitably, as opposed to um, keep people down. But, you know, everyone right now is talking about fascism and are they coming for, you know, that, that famous poem first, they came from the communists and then they came for, and, and I didn't care, and then eventually they came for me. Mm-hmm. People are asking whether or not some of the focus on trans issues right now, um, which get a lot of traction because I do think it's one of the newer cultural spaces to open up, and a lot of people are learning and working through their feelings about changing norms and the way that happens in a changing culture, that it's very easy to make them the focal point of a lot of these attacks. And they're concerned that this is kind of opening the gate to ratcheting up critiques of various communities that get bigger and bigger and bigger and closer and closer and closer to the average American until we look up one day and discover that there's lists of a lot of us for Mm -hmm. a lot of different reasons and that that information has been weaponized. I mean, do you think that there's a kind of a hyperbolic concern? As I said, I never want to discount anyone for being worried about the government counting or tracking things excessively. Again, I have a kind of garden variety libertarian paranoia about all of these things. Mm -hmm. You know how I feel about airport security, Mm -hmm. that real ID, they can delay it till the next century. Okay, but you were very open to Jeff Bezos putting a chip in your arm so you could check out at the grocery store more quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Robin, let let us not forget. Well, that's we'll different. Pull up the tape. That's different. <laughs> and I'm gonna, I'm absolutely gonna put that uh, that tracking device in my uh, suitcase. Yeah, for, the, I, uh, the Apple tracker. Yeah. We did a segment last week about women who have some security concerns. I don't concerns. think it aired yet. Oh, we no, have we a segment not. coming. In the future, up. <laughs> we are going to interview someone about something. Yes, uh, you know, people are using it to stalk others, but it also helps you find your keys. Right. Um, and there is an alert function that lets you know if there's a device in your vicinity so you can at least know if someone's trying to track you. But, yeah, look, I, it, that's the problem with this technology. A lot mm-hmm. of it is very convenient, and it's helpful. People like having the Amazon security cameras. They just might not necessarily want to consent to those tapes being used yeah. for a funniest home TV show reel that they're not being compensated for or 
to uh, get them in trouble with the law because they're being surveilled in that way. Yeah, you know what? No, I'm, I'm with the irritated uh, trans people on this one. At the next press conference Ken Paxton does, he should be asked why he made this request. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no qualifications. Yeah. This, this weirds me out. Bugs me. Don't yeah. like it. Yeah. Look, I, I do think there's something to the, the idea that, like, historically, what fascists have done is found a group small enough that no one really cares about how they're being attacked. Mm -hmm. And that circle gets widened slowly. And it's a little bit of one of those frogs in boiling water situations where nobody notices until it's too late. You know, if you turn up the if you put a frog, what are you doing? If you frogs? put a frog in water and turn the heat up slowly, it won't jump out; it'll die. If you drop a frog in boiling water, it will jump out immediately. So the mm. gradualness of it all endures us to new circumstances, no matter how harmful it is, until it's basically too late. So it's something to think about, uh, regardless of how you feel about some of the excesses of wokeness, whatever you perceive to be an excess. Um, that it's rarely the case historically that it's, it stops with a group that you're relatively indifferent to. Mm. All right, well, we'll have more rising after this. Please stay with us. Congressman-elect Maxwell Frost, the first Gen Z member of Congress, has stated that FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried donated to his campaign, but that he never solicita solicited a donation from SBF. He took to Twitter to release a statement saying, in part, we are an operation that rejects corporate PAC dollars, which means we also reject stolen money. Meanwhile, U.S. Attorney Damian Williams has called on people potentially involved in the scandal to come forward. To any person, entity or political campaign that has received stolen customer money, we ask that you work with us to return that money to the innocent victims. And to anyone who participated in wrongdoing at FTX or Alameda Research and who has not yet come forward, I would strongly encourage you to come see us before we come see you. Ooh, come see us before we come see you. Definitely has a little bit of a threat there. Like, they are going to find... I mean, the, multiple uh, organizations are investigating. Um, and this is... He's out of the uh, New York's Southern District, uh, the CFTC, uh, the SEC. I mean, there are a lot of guns pointed on this particular Did target. Did you hear that... The, this is a rumor. I mean, it's been reported in numerous places. The Guardian, the New York Post. It's not been confirmed, but they allege that Sam Bakeman-Fried and some of his top people at FTX had a group chat on Signal that was mm -hmm. called Wire Fraud. Wire Fraud. <laughs> I mean, this man's parents are lawyers. I cannot get over it. His, his dad is a tax lawyer, and apparently a pretty good one. At, at Stanford, I, everybody knows, don't write anything down. I mean, we. Some, I saw people joking that regular normies are all on signal because we're so paranoid about our text messages being disclosed, even though most of us are never going to get deposed for anything. And people like Sam Bankman-Fried, who are overseeing a multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme, are flagrantly doing things like this. It's like he's begging for it, or he mm -hmm. thinks he's just going to outsmart us all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. How do you feel about this giving back the campaign money Etc. On one hand, I like I don't. This guy Maxwell Frost, right? He he didn't know where this money came from. It's not something gives you money if in a political context doesn't mean you necessarily co-sign everything they that they believe the person who gave you the money. 
I don't know. I mean, this is the problem. Some people, Money's fungible also. It's like it all goes in the same pile. It's all the same. It's not like, well, his not, money I can get NFTs. back. Not NFTs. Right. <laughs> Except in this case. Yeah, I mean, so, so during the Bernie campaign, there was this moment where a billionaire, a Disney heiress who's a progressive, wanted to give Bernie money. And he had to give it back because he had this pledge not to take any donations from billionaires. And some people thought, well, this is getting absurd. If someone seems like a really good person, they inherited the money, they didn't get the money in a dirty, you know, through their own exploitation, right. then go ahead and take it. You know, we're fighting a fight here. Why would you fight with one arm behind your back? Now, from Bernie's perspective, he already out-fundraised everybody in the Democratic primary. He didn't need that money. And part of why he was able to raise so much, I would argue, is because the people valued the pledge that he made and were willing and able to step up and fill in. However, this scenario, I think, really justifies, really validates Bernie's perspective. If you are taking these huge sums of money from people, very, very rarely, if ever, are those huge sums of money actually legitimately clean when you're taking it from a billionaire. People don't become billionaires because they're a billion times more smart and righteous and just than the average person. You know, some some things have happened. Um, so, you know, uh, the our, our Maxwell Frost went ahead and gave that money to a LGBTQIA charity. Um, I talk about this in more depth in my radar. But a lot of folks are wondering what heads are going to roll here because of the sheer volume of money. What was it, $40 mm -hmm. uh, million dollars given in this last cycle to Democrats alone, not to mention all of the dark money. And this is what I talk about in my radar. Dark money specifically that was uh, given to Republicans so that Sam Bankman fried could keep the veneer of being a progressive, left-oriented person. All of the Republican donations went under the radar. You know, a lot of people were very close to this, and that money wasn't coming with no strings attached. He was actively lobbying folks for advantageous regulatory yeah. terms so that he could continue the scheme. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna. It's gonna be heads are going to roll, I think. And and the whole idea that they're gonna go easy on him, I, I think we're putting that to bed now. No, they are going to prosecute him and anyone involved with him to the fullest extent of the law. It's gonna be an easy win because it's it's so the the evidence is gonna be easy to obtain. It's I mean he keeps talking about it. He, he keeps, keeps talking about it, basically admitting to it. I mean I will say this. They they want to win. Law enforcement loves a win. They love. Look, we put yeah. this. This, you know, son of a gun behind bars for a thousand years and uh, and they're all going to pat themselves on the back. So they're, they're going to go after him. Yeah, I, I, I will say that having been a corporate lawyer for a time, I have also witnessed the slipperiest, the slipperiness of legal standards for business judgment in some of these kinds of cases. I never saw anything quite like this. But I have seen many people and read many documents that all but prove that someone obviously was acting in bad faith. They were obviously making the kind of decisions that were highly risky, speculative. Wall Street is just gambling. But because of the technicality of it all, with absent a red flag, banks have gotten away with murder, proverbial murder, probably literal murder as well, but proverbial murder um, or kind of sanctions that don't touch their core wealth in any meaningful way. And certainly we saw in the context of the financial crash in 2008 that almost nobody went to jail. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and it, de possible. it depends exactly what the law says, because on, on some level, you know, nobody made these people, these people were, I think, duped. Nobody forced them to invest their money on this specific thing. It's like no one, you know, forced you, forced you to go to the casino and bet it all on, on red. Like these are choices you made. Now, maybe it was under false pretenses. Maybe 
and then maybe the money was actually taken and, and it was it was fraudulent what was being done with it. That was not part of, you know, you made this exchange. Okay, here's my money and our understanding, our contractual agreement is you're doing X with it and then Y was done with it and that does violate the law. But that's On the some thing. level, if you put your, you know, if you go to the casino, sometimes you lose. But, but Robbie, here's the thing. If, if there were a bridge yeah. in the middle of a city that said, walk over it at your own risk and you walked over it, and you fell through and got seriously injured. And the bridge builder said, hey, like there was a sign. You should have known better than to walk over the bridge. Our kind of expectations from living in a society, rightly or wrongly, don't just, you know, they, they set us up for failure sometimes. And that's why we have these rules and guardrails around liability. The law anticipates that sometimes there is something called an attractive nuisance, where basically you have, you've made conditions that are both dangerous and attractive, then you're responsible for any harm that comes out of them, whether it's, it's we're usually talking about like a, a uncovered swimming pool that some neighborhood kid falls in or something like that. But... Some we, of those are really we, ab- we live, abusive lawsuits, but, but though. We, we live in a society where there are people have rightly or wrongly expectations about some basic regulatory frameworks that are involved. Moreover, Sam Bankman-Fried is being accused of actually actively misleading people about the value of this company. Yeah. We're seeing this now with a lot of this NFT ape stuff where these celebrities are now under the microscope. Uh, uh, what's his name? Um Larry David, in this context, is a celebrity under the microscope, I think, being charged right now for participating in these advertisements that, you know, misrepresent the value of the product that is being sold. So that is not just passively, hey, I offered some people a bad deal and they took it, it's on them. It's I'm lying to you about the quality of this deal. Well, that's what I'm saying. I agree. Yeah, but there's, to go to your bridge example, I mean, there are some examples, like the, the parking lot I park in, to do this show, it's like there's a sign on it that says that don't leave your valuables in the car. If your valuables get stolen, we're not responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that wouldn't hold up. I don't know. Maybe you no, can sue I, them anyway. We we have an expectation that sometimes and the whole the whole in a like a neighbor like a kid or a, someone trespasses and drowns in your pool and you can get sued for that. Right. I've I never think, agreed I with that. Better, I've always thought that was bad. I think the better example would be if the sign said drive into this parking garage at your own risk, and then a hole opens up in the ground when you pull into a space and your car goes plummeting down three floors, and the parking garage says, "Hey, I never made any representations about whether or not the structural integrity of this garage was up to date." Well, you th- you think. The building or the city or whoever would not, or in their choosing, in their choice of who to do business with, they pick the one, like, at the end of the day, you're not, we're not going to allow you to put up a sign that says that. And if that happens, then we're going to exactly. recoup our investment. Exactly. But I think that's a perfect analogy for what's gone on here. Mm-hmm. All of these trusted folks, all of these media, legacy media organizations, they buoyed uh, Sam Bankman Freed. They said he was a wonder kid. The celebrities had his back. You know, as an average, low, lower, relatively low information consumer, yeah, that is a kind of misrepresentation in and of itself. The same way that, you know, saying, hey, I have a building here, folks, park in me. <laughs> it's a similar kind of representation, misrepresentation. <laughs> Some colorful analogies in this segment. <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute with more Rising. Stay with us. It appears Elon Musk could be in some financial trouble. According to reports, Twitter is auctioning off items from its headquarters and has not paid rent at its San Francisco and global office for several weeks. The auction will happen online starting January 17th. Elon Musk has also sold about 22 million more shares of Tesla stock, according to a financial filing last night. The transactions took place earlier this week and are worth roughly $3.6 billion. So you think he's uh, in some trouble? 
I would not necessarily personally choose to invest in a business uh, or see it as a hallmark of success if a month after it was purchased by a new CEO, they started selling off office chairs, uh, bird-shaped paraphernalia, exercise bikes. They don't need as many many chairs. He (laughs) fired a bunch of people. Yeah. Uh, but you can go Maybe those chairs were shadow banning people, and they should <laughs> out they go with every, with all the rest of the the censors. Oh boy! Look, it's it's not it's not a, it's not a good look. Um, it the oh. the optics of it aren't great. Um, and as many people have pointed out, most folks can't just decide to not pay rent and to to make themselves. Um, uh, financially viable for the short term. And, and oftentimes you see that there are these different rules for elites than the rest of us. I don't know if you watched the whole um, WeWork scandal and all of the videos and movies that have come out of that scam, but over and over again, you see people entrusted with money, entrusted with loans, allowed to fall behind on their debts in the way that regular average people do, can't do. Can't. Well, I don't know. Small businesses sometimes, I think this happened in the D.C. area, have stopped paying rent, but there's no one else who's going to take over this, the space. So the, the landlord we lets just, them. We just came out of a pandemic where the, an eviction moratorium happen. kept many people from facing eviction. And after the eviction report, moratorium la- lapsed, we saw an incredible rise in homelessness and people having to move out of the, their cities or wherever they were living to go live with family and things like that. We have an entire generation of millennials who are disproportionately living at home and Gen Zers are never even going to leave the nest whatsoever because they can't even afford the room and board costs at the colleges to the extent that they go to colleges. So we're in a place where obviously the average person understands that they are not subject to the same standards as someone like Elon Musk, where he in some spaces is even being congratulated for his business acumen and being able to weather the storm by not paying his bills and selling off furniture. So this is with Donald Trump as well. He was notoriously sued for not paying his debts and people consider him to be a, a, a business scion who we should be looking up to for his acumen. And so often it, it just boils down to cheating. So, I mean, do, do you see this differently? Do you, do you honestly think that this is kind of good news for the job Musk is doing right now? I mean, I don't know. It's too early to tell. We have to see what Twitter looks like a year or two years or three years from now. I think it's possible that he wanted to sell off some Tesla stock just to kind of hedge against whatever's going to happen in the market and that actually buying Twitter was a convenient way to have an excuse to sell some stock, to collect that money, to cobble together to buy Twitter. Um, that was well, one let's... theory for why he was doing this entire thing in the first place, which actually made some sense to me. And, yeah, he's down. He, look, he's downsized the company by he's, he's fired tons and tons and tons of people. It could be that the company runs just as smoothly without them and, uh, and it runs just as smoothly with a few Few fewer chairs. Maybe people employees need to be sitting less and working more. Well, look, I don't know. you're allowed to fire people. Yeah. Sometimes you are, sometimes you aren't. We'll see if some of those uh, lawsuits come through. But you're allowed to fire people, generally speaking. But if I have, uh, if I'm paying rent and splitting rent with a roommate, and I kick them out or I break up with my partner, whoever's sharing the rent and with you me, pay the whole I still got to pay the rent. So that doesn't really, um, you know, factor in there. In my view, although we should talk a little bit more about what you just brought up, the selling of stock. People online have pointed out that this is what Elon Musk was telling stockholders at the same time he was dumping those stocks. Matt Bender compiled these tweets. You can see Musk says, quote, I will make sure Tesla shareholders benefit from Twitter long term. And in response to a Tesla investor, think long term and avoid leverage. So is Elon Musk um, kind of saying do what I say and not what I do and inducing people to uh, have uh, 
uh, confidence in the in the stock long term as he's bailing it himself. Yeah, I mean, of course he's going to tell the investors to hold firm to that. There's nothing. There's no reason to panic. Um, that, it's what SBF said as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, exactly. You know, I, like it seems to me that you're still skeptical that this is going to or that this should affect people's perception of Elon Musk as a good faith actor or that this was a savvy uh, kind of financial play that is going well for him. I mean, we should always approach these people with a certain amount of, of both skepticism that they're acting in good faith and, and whatnot. But we should also approach them with a fair amount of reality in that they usually make decisions that are basically competent for their own bottom lines and for these companies. It could be that Musk has some unique obsession with Twitter. He seems very obsessed with Twitter. He spends all his time there. And it is causing him to make decisions that are otherwise a little suspect from a financial uh, strategic planning kind of position that's possible or it could be he has access to a lot of information we don't have and this will in the long term be just as tesla's been very successful um stock uh, his, is dropping uh, his, significantly he built, right now. Uh, he, his, his spacex wildly successful under his tutelage he got ahead of everybody else even though he started behind them um look i I don't know. And, and he, you know, he'll say things that make you question whether he really knows what's going on with Twitter. Like he said that, you know, how important it is and how many users it has. I'm like, wait, you're talking about Facebook. <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> Twitter is used by a much smaller number of people. But it's very early. And it, 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 so many, I could so easily imagine a world where everybody has to eat their words for saying, oh, crazy Elon took over and fired everybody and changed all the policies. And, and then it, all the people say, oh, it's falling apart. It's collapsing. It's not even going to run. No, no. A year from now, it could be profitable. It could be doing it great. Could, it could, but you pointed out that he seems to I not even know. know what's going on in his own company. He part of the initial Twitter disclosure, Twitter files disclosures, was that, you know, it was like, uh, you know, red flag. This FBI former FBI mm-hmm. guy is overseeing the 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 data that we're about to drop, and people are like, well, do you not know who your own um, chief legal officer is? I mean, that's your, that's a senior position. Do you not? And, you know, maybe it takes them a month, a few weeks to figure this stuff out. the company. It's a million people. Ravi, when you buy, if I'm buying a laptop for the purpose of doing video editing, then I'm going to immediately check if it has video editing software when I buy the laptop. If I'm buying Twitter for the purpose of writing the ship and throwing all the people who I think have done all the, all the wrongdoings and clearing all the people who I think are bad faith, then that should be a, a task that you address before you have the very person you perceive to be a bad faith actor. Because I just don't, I don't necessarily trust. Drop. All of the mainstream media figures saying this is a this is a disaster. This is a sinking ship. This is the the, the no, most poorly not, managed. It's all failing. That. It's all collapsing. This is the that. end. We're not predicting the end or anything. But here's the story. The story today is that Elon Musk is 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 selling off furniture, not paying his rent, and dumping stock. And you can frame that and spin that however you want. I don't. I think it is a mistake to read into that more than what it is right now. A lot of companies go through these ups and downs. But you said a second ago that you think that people, CEOs, generally make decisions that are best for them and their business. I agree with half of that. I think they make decisions that are best for them. But with all of the mergers and acquisitions that you've seen over the last 30 years of M&A, you know, crisis, 40, 50 years of M&A has gone wild, we know that a lot of times 
these people buy these businesses to get what they can out of it and move on. And you even articulated that this could be some kind of play that is involved with mm -hmm. Tesla and all of these other kinds of things. So I would not be surprised if all the people who sincerely hope that he's invested in Twitter, myself included, to make Twitter better end up very, very disappointed. I don't want this to happen, but I'm seeing increasing signs of it, that this was never about actually making a, what I think is a very important website better. And it was about whatever these kind of financial mechanisms are that are going to make Elon Musk's life better. Mm. I don't know. I think he's already made it sort of better. I, I appreciate these disclosures. And I very strongly appreciate knowing more about how everything went off the rails in terms of several important content moderation decisions and knowing wh why and how people were uh, suppressed without their, without their knowledge. Um, the, the number one thing he could do now that would be beneficial would be to just, just craft transparent processes. Yes. Because there is going to be content moderation, and it can't all just be on the fly, whatever Elon declares, yeah. that's going to lend itself toward profound inconsistencies. Right. So we should know what actions are being taken and then what actions you need to take to get it back into the good graces of the platform. Yeah. If you're being paused, if you're being limited in your reach, here is why. And here's when it will end if these steps are taken. And then everyone will act less crazy because it won't be some <laughs> conspiratorial, paranoid, delude. Am I crazy for thinking I'm being limited? Just let people know, show them the way back, and have, have transparent, somewhat obvious, fair, unbiased rules. Is that too much to ask? Doesn't seem like too much to ask. I completely agree. We keep I completely it. agree. So if you want to purchase um, some succulents from the, the Twitter patio where apparently Tom Hanks once played co played a uh, cornhole, you can do that. What are su succulents? Is that like a cactus? Like a cactus, yeah. It'll, it'll be up. It'll be up in January. You about can bid the, on it. About the, only plant that, that out. about the only plant that doesn't <laughs> die in my apartment. <laughs> right. Well, we're rising for you after this. Representative Nancy Mace, a Republican, had an interesting exchange with a social justice activist. It's very active on Twitter, uh, particularly speaking up about trans issues. Here was that exchange. Is rhetoric on social media a problem and a threat to our democracy, Mr. Ward? Yes, absolutely. Mr. Siegel? Yes. Ms. Caraballo? Yes. Ms. Nomani? Yes. Ms. Tyler? Yes. Yes. Um, Another question I have, uh, do you believe that rhetoric targeting officials with violence for carrying out their constitutional duties um, is a threat to democracy, Mr. Ward? Mr. Siegel? Yes. 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 <clears throat> All right. Thank you very much. Only a few weeks after the attempted attack on a Supreme Court justice on June 25th, one of the witnesses, Alejandra Caraballo, tweeted out the following in response to a decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade, and I'll quote directly from the tweet, the six justices who overturned Roe should never know peace again. It is our civic duty to accost them every time they're in public. They are pariahs. Since women don't have their rights, these justices should never have a peaceful moment in public again. I know. So that was a pretty good example of having receipts, uh, I thought. Uh, th this individual, uh, Alejandra Caraballo, is very spicy. On yeah, she, she's very vocal. The tweet speaks for itself. And just to really make the context clear, Mace is describing how Carballo's tweets and tweets like that are responsible for harassment, harassment that Mace herself experienced. 
What I and I think that it, it is a, a perfectly valid, legitimate calling out of hypocrisy. I'm a little bit lost, though, in the back and forth about who's hypocritical and who's not about what people actually want to happen. Because at the same time, you have a moment like this, which has gone viral for a lot of people who feel like the left is unfair in how it describes the right as violent and, you know, especially um, fascistic and all of these things when they call for similar kinds of violence in this example. The right is also saying we shouldn't have these restrictions on speech. You should be able to say what you want to say. So which is it? Are people allowed to uh, inveigh against Supreme Court justices and say they should be accosted and say that people like me should be accosted? Or do we want all of that kind of speech to be considered to be improper, at least on social media, which would mean a lot of the conservative rhetoric would also come under scrutiny. Maybe this is a good time to play another clip that people are talking about a lot right now from Marjorie Taylor Greene, in which she basically argues that if she could do one six again, if she were in charge, it would have gone a little bit differently. Can we roll that? Then January 6th happens, and next thing you know, I organized the whole thing along with Steve Bannon here. And I want to tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Not to mention, it would have been armed. Yeah, the, the crowd has even seemed a little bit unsteady with the, the would have been armed I mean, it, comment. It sounds to me like a very bad, uh, in bad taste joke she so was making So that's what she there, claims. But... The White House asked her to apologize and for the Republicans to disavow this kind of incitement mm -hmm. to violence. She came back saying that it was a kind of ironic humor and she's allowed to say what she wants to say. But obviously we're in a situation where I think a lot of, in a lot of people's minds, either this kind of invective, you know, Candace Owens, she's not a politician, but she has argued recently on her show that there should be more harassment and more con open condemnation of trans people, um, saying that they should be discriminated against. And people are, are seeing res res results in terms of armed people showing up at these drag shows and the like. There are conflicts. We just recently had this shooting, obviously. So which is it? Do we want everyone to be able to call violence all the time on both sides of the aisle? including against Mace? Or do we want nobody to be saying these kinds of things? And some of the free speech rhetoric has actually got to go out of the window. You're right that there are a lot of hypocritical calls for civility. And those call hypocritical both because you minimize your own side's lack of civility while decrying what the, what the fascist right or the crazy left is doing. So it's hypocritical on that front. And then it does exist in tension with this, uh, especially on the right, this embrace of the most total uh, free, free speech, speech kind of norms, yeah. which free speech absolutism, absolutism absolutely, absolutely should be embraced in a First Amendment context. I don't think any of the sentiments expressed by any of the people we've showed videos from are or should be criminalized under the First Amendment. But the standard for whether, whether you should be embraced and given a position in Congress or be, or be a successful pundit. It shouldn't be illegal for you to be any of those things, but we might, it is proper to denounce and criticize and, and call on the voters or the viewers or whoever it is to shun. I don't, I don't think, those things aren't actually intention. They're only intention because we've started, or some people on the right at least, have started to embrace this, this I don't want to call it extreme because it's good to be extremely pro-free speech in a legal context. 
doesn't require like you're not required to like let everyone come into your house and start screaming at you or something. It's your doing. It you're not violating the First Amendment if you say you know if we don't or if we, on our show if we didn't if we didn't we're not we're having Alex Jones on right now. We're not violating the First Amendment or something. It's not because we hate free speech. We like free speech. It's just that there are some sure, Robbie, standard practices. So it does seem to me that in some of these examples, particularly the uh, Alejandro's tweets. And in the Marjorie Taylor Greene example, these are, I think, statements that come a lot closer to incitement to violence, saying Supreme Court justices should be accosted, saying that you would have preferred an armed attack on Congress and your fellow Congress members. That comes a lot closer to what I would argue I is not— do. I don't think either does. You do? What is incitement beyond go punch that person? I think you should go punch that person. Well, uh, there's time, place, and manner stuff, right? It has to be— a specific person and a specific Supreme time. Supreme Court justices, anytime how, you see them. I mean, just, <laughs> no, but, but that's a position, not a saying, you know what, you know what we ought to do at 4.30 tomorrow, we ought to right. all get our guns so, and go to this McDonald's so like, where Brett Kavanaugh sure, is going to so, be. That's incitement. So like I said, these come a lot closer to incitement than a lot of other things that have happened on the app. Whether or not they actually meet the legal definition, they come a lot closer to incitement. And so I think the question is actually out of the realm. It's getting increasingly out of the realm of whether this is something that is protected, uh, you know, whether or not this is something that is like in a free speech place or whether this is something that is actually not protected speech. And how do we feel about that? Because I think at the end of the day, there have obviously been many armed conflicts that have been recorded in history as just. Every war is an incitement to violence and obviously a lot of killing, death, and destruction that depending on who the winners are and who writes history, we don't think of as someone just randomly shot someone someday. You know, Crispus Attucks dies in the Revolutionary War. We think of that as a heroic kind mm -hmm. of, a, of a moment in history. R.I.P. Uh, Crispus Attucks. But, like, the, 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 the issue here is, is the, is the only thing that's really determining whether people feel one way or another about one of these moments just what side you're on and who you think is righteous in their condemnation. Plenty of people genuinely believe that because of the real threat to people, women's well-being, uh, ability to survive dangerous pregnancies, um, having been victims of rape and being forced to carry to term, all of these things that are on the line in the Roe or Dobbs context justifies you know, putting that same amount of violence, threatening that same amount of violence to the people who made that kind of decision. People believe that. I think what's difficult about this clip is that I think on some level, Alejandro does believe it, but when pressed on it, isn't willing to kind of own that. I mean, there are a lot of people, I mean, yes, but there are a lot of people who think that abortion is itself an act of, of, an yes, act of murder against killed, a living human being. And they've killed abortion providers because of that belief. Yeah. You know, so I, I think that the issue here is... I mean, okay, but there are a lot of people who hold that belief but are not acting on it in any... Well, except for, except for voting for well, policies using the legitimate political that process. the other side thinks is going to result in people's deaths. And this is the problem. When the rhetoric is your belief in this leads to death, then people do sincerely believe that violence is justified. And there have been times historically where whole nations have b bought into that premise depending on what the cause is. And I think, I don't know, like, I don't think this is something that is going to be rationalized out because at the end of the day, what, the only dishonest thing here, I think, is Alejandro not saying, yes, I actually believe the Supreme Court ju ju yeah. deserve what they get. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene, in some ways, is, like, more honest here. I think she... Well, I, mean, I think she knows what her audience... I think she thought what her audience wanted to hear there. I don't know what she actually believes. I don't know what she actually believes either. But I do think that... 
this isn't actually about some consistent principle here. It's about who 10, 50, 100 years from now is going to be perceived as having the more righteous hmm. cause. And that's a, kind of a scary place to be. I mean, I don't want to come off like the civility police because it's lame, but we would it would benefit our society if our elected representatives and our commentator class was a little less insighty in their rhetoric. If we even were if it falls well the, short in, in the, my view of in the years answer. or days before the Haitian Revolution and Haitians are calling for the murder of the plantation owners, the people who are enslaving them, the people who are occupying their country. Are we going to say, oh, that was incitement to violence and that was inappropriate and they shouldn't have done that? They killed so the United all the white people on the island, didn't they? They killed all the people who were enslaving them, yes. Should we not have killed Nazis because they're Nazis? Are we going to fight this war? Are we not going to? Do we think that they're just causes or they're not? They kill the women and, it, and the children? I mean, how many you're, women and, you're throwing the Haitian... How many, how many slave women and children were not only killed, well, but raped, brutalized, and enslaved for hundreds of years? Didn't they, like... I don't want to relitigate this. Didn't they go like door to door, determining what, like what your skin color was, and then shooting you? That's if you not true. In fact, white? Polish immigrants were specifically protected because they did not participate in the slave trade, and they were seen as allies in Haiti. So it wasn't about color; it was about behavior. I mean, if you're, and if people your point who are enslaving people, revolutions the, and civil wars are very the, the bloody. The point is that horrible. history decides which victims were justified and which were not. And I think that a lot of this mudslinging, including by Mace, I think that she makes a solid point about hypocrisy, but it doesn't actually mean anything because nobody actually cares when the conservatives are in a different position where they think that something is right and justified and an abortion is mu murder, suddenly the tables flip. That's, that's all I'm saying. And it, I think, unfortunately, this is one of those things that's going to have to be decided by historical perspective, and we're not going to get very far in this moment. Mm. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton has blocked the Press Freedom Act as Democrats try to push the bill, which has already been approved by the House, over the finish line. According to Mediaite, the bill protects from disclosure any information identifying a source, as well as any records, contents of a communication, documents, or information obtained or created by journalists in the course of their work. The bill also protects select third parties from being required to provide testimony or any document consisting of a record or information that relates to a business transa transaction and a journalist. According to the Republican senator, the bill would insulate reporters from scrutiny and consequences and open a floodgate of leaks damaging law enforcement and our nation's security. And I think we have a statement from him, a video that we wanted to play for you all. Let's run that. The Press Act would immunize journalists and leakers alike from scrutiny and consequences for their actions. This bill would prohibit the government from compelling any individual who calls himself a journalist from disclosing the source or substance of such damaging leaks. This effectively would grant journalists special legal privileges to disclose sensitive information that no other citizen enjoys. It would treat the press as a special caste of crusaders for truth who are somehow set apart from their fellow citizens. Hmm. So the first part of that, he's, he's talking like in outrage terms about things that are like, Good. Right? right. That would shield people <laughs> from, that would immunize people telling you things about the government the government doesn't want you to hear. Like, yeah, that's the, tell, the whole point. It? Yeah. I will say, however, I do take his point a little bit about 
and I don't fully understand, how does this bill define journalists? Because it is true that journalists is, should not be a protected class. Uh, the, the First Amendment, free speech rights, free assembly rights, petition rights, do not only apply to journalists. They apply to everyone. There's mm -hmm. no constitutional, there, there's no category for journalists as separate from the rest of, of citizens. And there shouldn't be, because you, you can engage in, like, you don't, need a, you don't need a credential to be a journalist. You don't need a, a, a degree or a certificate or a, a training period. You're just, if you're doing the work of journalists, uh, journalism, you can call yourself a journalist. Just like we don't want to, you know, get really cute about whether WikiLeaks is journalism or, you know, whether, whether that, uh, that Julian Assange is, a, well, because that's what some people say. Well, he's not really a journalist, so what he did was not okay. It should not matter. He was engaged in the work of journalism because he was holding powerful government people to account by revealing information about them that they didn't want you to hear. Right, but there are whistleblower protections. There are protections for journalists against having to re reveal their sources. Well, whistleblower is a, is, a, is a defined category. Right. So the point here is that he's acting as though it's insane to create these protected classes for people when our society has obviously decided in the interest of having accurate reporting on people like him, Congress members, who use the power at their disposal often to cloak themselves and their own special privileges. We have Congress unwilling to prohibit themselves from playing by special rules where they're allowed to insider trade and the rest mm -hmm. of us aren't, and on and on and on. You're right. He's, he's describing things that are very good as very bad, and apparently rather speciously pretending as though the bill doesn't contemplate some of the concerns that he's articulating and create exceptions. So Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon responded to Tom Cotton um, saying that the exceptions uh, to make sure that we could protect our country were strong enough to get the support of 435 members of the House. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. This is a very, very bipartisan, bipartisan bill, and it almost passed the Senate, but for Tom Cotton's objection, it seems. And it's a really odd posture, it seems to me, to take for a party that has gotten so much traction and won so many hearts and minds over being the party that has painted itself as more proactive about pr pr protecting speech rights. This is a bipartisan pro-free speech bill that he's sticking his neck out over saying, hey, I'm the lone, I'm the lone person who's going to be against this. So I'm looking at the bill now, and I'm looking at how it defines journalist. This term means a person who regularly gathers, prepares, collects photographs, records, writes, edits, reports, investigates, or publishes news or information that concerns local, national, or international events or other matters of public interest for dissemination to the public. So it means a person who regularly gathers. So that... So what's the that, what exactly is the concern? I would strike that part out. So any whistleblower. Let's let's pretend that yeah. someone is marginally a journalist. Um, what is the concern? Because I, what this what this protects is the journalism, not whatever they also might have been doing or conspiring to do with some bad actors. So the concerns that were articulated about terrorism, violence, imminent threats. Um, uh, I think this is also this is from uh, uh, I think we leave uh, uh, Congressmember Durbin. Um, you know, the press act, like he says, the press act, like recent Justice Department regulations issued by Attorney General Merrick Garland, accounts for these scenarios. It makes exceptions for information necessary to prevent or identify the perpetrator in an act of terrorism or to prevent a threat of imminent violence, significant bodily harm or death. And it doesn't apply to foreign agents, terrorists or journalists suspected of committing crimes. So part of what was going on in the Julian Assange scenario is that people, one, as you pointed out, diminish the idea that he's actually a journalist, and then also accuse him of kind of conspiring in the illegal 
you know, mm -hmm. taking of the documents in the first instance. But absent evidence that a journalist has actually induced the initial illegal act, they are protected. No, it, that, but that's not the objection I'm raising. Okay. The objection I'm raising is, so under this, it would be, say, a whistleblower, someone who has information in the Defense Department, goes to the New York Times and tells the New York Times reporter, gives them this information. This, this law, this bill, would stop the government from forcing, from arresting the, the reporter for, uh, for writing a story about it, or for not saying where, who the source is. But it would, because the New York Times reporter regularly gathers, prepares, et cetera, if the whistleblower just tells this to some random person who then publishes a blog post about it or something, I think my reading of this is the government could still come down on that person because that person is not a journalist. They're not someone who regularly engages well, in active journalism. Well, I would hope that journalism. they would be so able to I would, qualify as being a journalist. Well, right. right so now, that's what I'm saying. I would, I would change this. To make it more strict, To make it more, more to, to not specifically cover yeah. a protected group of people defined as journalists. Yeah. Well, look, we've been I'm talking I'm not sure that's what Tom, I think Tom Cotton was raising that point to malign the, the bill without right. actually wanting to do that. But I would change it that way to just... Well, he wants. He doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for journalists needing this protection right. in the first instance. And it's worth pointing out that um, I don't think journalists should have protections that other people don't. Well, have. the Freedom of Press uh, Foundation um, director of advocacy explained that quote conservative journalists are often targets of government surveillance. One hundred percent. And that uh, most harassment of journalists isn't necessarily political. Uh, and that this strong anti-surveillance bill recognizes national security concerns and should be something that is appealing to people across the political spectrum. I mean, it clearly is. It passed the House with 435 right, votes. Right, but here comes Tom Cotton. So what do you make of this as a political I mean, no, Tom Cotton is a different kind of Republican. Mm -hmm. um, he's a, he is a national security Republican. Um, he's, he's definitely not, he, he's interesting. He's not, he doesn't fit neatly into some of the boxes available because he's definitely not a never-Trump Republican. He's not, but he's not part of the new right. He's not exactly a neocon, I don't think, but he's more, uh, he, I, I would say he's, more pro the national security state. Um, he's a, he's a big uh, he, he's a big. The government needs all the power it needs to engage in to, to, to fight violence and terrorism and crime and et cetera. Remember, he yeah. was the send in the troops yeah. op-ed author. Mm -hmm. um, send in the send in the federal national right. troops. Yeah, he's a he's not a not a limited government guy. Not a so so I think this very much fits with his ideology. Well, look, as Trump once very famously said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. He might have been talking about it in the context of COVID, but it stands. To reason that it's a, it's a very <laughs> what are you, You're making you a bleach that? drinking joke here? Just a little bit. We have, we're having a little bit of fun. Uh. Look, it is true. Like, and people who are overly trying to protect the deep state when it has every resource at its disposal to keep it secret, secret. I mean, there was a story just this past week about how the Pentagon has failed the last five audits and it can only account for something like one third of the money that it's getting at the same time that it's about to get approved for this unprecedentedly large Routinely, defense. the Pentagon budget. has no idea you what know, money spent in Afghanistan and on places like that was actually spent on. We they need more no eyes on this stuff and we need journalists yeah. to be more protected to report on these kinds of things and the kind Everyone. of disclosures that Julian Assange made public and for which he's currently being prosecuted. So I would say people engaging in journalism 
rather than journalists. Well, look, it's worth because noting— Because everyone can engage in journalism. It's, it's worth noting also that we've been talking a lot about the Kevin DeLeon story in California. And those tapes were leased by an unknown source to someone who published them on a blog. I had um, the guy mm-hmm. who wrote that initial blog story on my podcast about a month ago when this all first broke. And I, I don't—I think he's right. He's a, he's a journalist. And I don't think that—I think that it, 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 people are vulnerable when they're outside of these legacy magazines. You know, we're talking so much about why it is that Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald mm-hmm. and these people who are breaking important news tend to be independent. David Sirota tend to have their own independent enterprises. And I would hate a world where someone decides that they aren't real journalists because they're not working for exactly. a legacy and media. Exactly. And there's a disdain for them from the legacy media. Mm-hmm. There was a disdain for uh, for Julian Assange. Right. From people. There was a, a, a reticence to speak up on his behalf. Right. Because there's like, a, well, was what he's doing is not really Right. Including from parts of the left, which is disgraceful. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I seek to avoid in yeah. my tweets I get it. of this bill. <laughs> All right, that does it for us for today. We didn't even comment on our matching Our matching, day. all right. Yeah, Looks blue. good. <laughs> we had a blue day. <laughs> well, we hope you have a great weekend. We'll be back here next week for more festive coverage, uh, the most festive coverage you've seen from us yet. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care. Take it easy.